Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Tabisoluhoko and Figile Lingwati. Now in our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Former Kenya's President Daniel Arab Moy dies and China calls on the international community to help tackle coronavirus. In economics news, South African motorists breathe a sigh of relief and in sports news, Women's Rugby World Cup final set for Eden Park in 2021. But first up the news with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Former Kenyan President Daniel Arab Moy has died. Moy led the country from 1978 to 2002. He died in Nairobi where he had been receiving treatment. He was 95 years old. The announcement on Moy's death was made by President Uhuru Kenyatta. The Malawi diaspora grouping in South Africa has welcomed the decision by Malawi's Constitutional Court to uphold an application from opposition parties to nullify Peter Mutarika's victory in the May 2019 presidential election. The court has ordered that a new presidential vote be held in 150 days' time. Mutarika, who has been Malawi's president since 2014, won the election with a 38.57% share of the vote. The opposition party leader Lazarus Chakwera received 35.41% in the final tally and Deputy President Salos Chilima 20.24%. The Electoral Commission declared Mutarika the winner despite complaints of irregularities. Chakwera and Chilima both rejected the results and filed a petition to the High Court asking it to nullify the results. The diaspora grouping's chairperson Priscilla Muasing says they are elated about what she terms positive news. We are happy that it has come to this because people were anxious to know, but now we know that um, we've got um, a way forward in our country. President Mutarika is a law professor by profession, so I'm sure that he will abide. He's a man of law, he knows the law, and I'm sure he would not want to go against the laws of uh, Malawi. When they were um, announcing the results, there was peace and calm. In all the uh, towns in Malawi we have been following, even here the diaspora, there was peace and calm, there was no violence, people were just waiting to hear what is the court saying. The Kenyan Education Ministry has dispatched a team to go to the west of the country where 14 learners died while at least 39 others were seriously injured. In a stampede at a primary school, local media reports indicate that a teacher at Kagamega Primary School was beating some learners and this prompted other learners to run down a staircase. In the process, some fell and were trampled to death. Police have confirmed the report, saying 20 other learners from the school were admitted to health facilities and have been discharged. Reporter Sarah Kimani has the story. 
The Minister for Education, uh, Professor George Magoha, has sent a message of condolence and he has also dispatched one of the senior government officials in the Ministry of Education from Nairobi uh, to go to uh, Kakamega, where the school is, to, uh, to find out exactly what happened. But at this point, we do not know uh, if the school will be closed. But there is a sense of shock, not just uh, at the school where the accident happened, but even in the country, um, a lot of uh, reactions on social media, people calling for accountability. The United States says more than $300 million stolen by Nigeria's former military leader Sunny Abacha is to be returned to the country. The U.S. says the money had been obtained illegally during and after General Abacha's rule, which ended with his death in 1998. The BBC's Mayeni Jones reports. The United States says the assets represent corrupt money from the Abacha regime, which it forfeited following a 2014 complaint by the Department of Justice. The complaint alleged that Mr. Abacha and his associates embezzled billions from the government of Nigeria, then laundered the money through U.S. financial institutions and by buying American bonds. The repatriation of the money is part of an agreement between the U.S., Jersey and Nigeria. The funds will be used to support free infrastructure projects, including an expressway in the southwest, a road in the north and a bridge in central Nigeria. And finally, for the first time in more than three years, a United Nations flight carrying civilians in need of urgent medical treatment has left the Yemeni capital of Sana'a, which is under rebel control. The transport was agreed after two years of negotiations with the warring parties. Abdul Ghani al-Irani, a conflict analyst at the Sana'a Center for Strategic Studies, says more help is needed. It's a good sign, but uh, we have to take into consideration that this is way too little and way too late. The economy has been weaponized by the two factions of the conflict and uh, have done tremendous damage and harm to the people of Yemen. This is only a small fraction of the cost of war at the humanitarian level. And finally, the United States Senate is expected to vote on Friday on whether to call witnesses in President Donald Trump's impeachment trial. This after both the prosecution and defense fielded questions from Senate jurors over the last two days. Democrats have backed calls by the impeachment manager that former National Security Advisor John Bolton be called to testify after a leaked draft of his upcoming book revealed that President Trump directly tied the release of military aid to Ukraine to the them launching an investigation into a political opponent. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective.
The United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has urged people around the world to follow the advice of the World Health Organization and avoid stigma and discrimination in the fight against the coronavirus. This as the Chinese Foreign Ministry earlier accused the United States of stirring a panic in its response to the outbreak. It follows a decision by the State Department to advise citizens against travel to China while blocking foreigners who recently visited China from entering the United States. The WHO earlier confirmed that over 17,000 cases had been confirmed, with 362 deaths recorded, shown by Swiss reports. The United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres taking to Twitter to warn against stigma and discrimination while calling for people to stand together in solidarity and compassion in combating the spread of the virus. His spokesperson, Stefan Dujeric. He's been in touch with, uh, with Dr. Tedros. Uh, Again, this is a, a medical scientific issue in which WHO is the natural leader within the UN system. So we fully, uh, we obviously fully support them. One message I think is important is that uh, the fight against the coronavirus should not lead to any uh, prejudice, any stigmatization of groups of people or of healthcare uh, workers that human rights need to be respected. The United States declared coronavirus a national public health emergency following the WHO's decision to declare it a public health emergency of international concern, joining several countries, including Singapore, Australia and New Zealand, in blocking entry to foreigners who've recently been to China. A growing list of airlines have also suspended flights to mainland China. Listen to U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar. The president has signed a presidential proclamation using his authority pursuant to Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act, temporarily suspending the entry into the United States of foreign nationals who pose a risk of transmitting the 2019 novel coronavirus. As a result, foreign nationals, other than immediate family of U.S. citizens and permanent residents, who have traveled in China within the last 14 days will be denied entry into the United States for this time. A written statement from China's foreign ministry accused some countries, particularly the United States, of overreacting against the advice of the WHO while lamenting Washington's lack of substantial assistance to Beijing's efforts. WHO Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. There is no reason for measures that unnecessarily interfere with international travel and trade. We call on all countries to implement decisions that are evidence-based and consistent. WHO stands ready to provide advice to any country that's considering which measures to take. 151 cases have been confirmed in 23 countries outside of China, including 11 cases in the United States, with three possible cases under investigation in New York City. Only one death outside China has been confirmed in the Philippines. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York.
The Chinese government has called on the international community to help it curb the spread of the deadly coronavirus. Over 360 people have died since the outbreak was first reported in China in December last year. China's ambassador to South Africa, Song Tiang Lin, says the coronavirus is the worst epidemic to threaten human life in decades and has since spread to more than 24 countries. More than 17,000 people have been infected so far. Fenrel Schumer reports from Pretoria. China has a population of about 1.4 billion people. The country is grappling with the ripple effects of the deadly coronavirus outbreak. It has so far claimed 361 lives since it was first detected in Wuhan City, the capital of Hubei province in central China, in December last year. Chinese ambassador to South Africa, Song Tianlin, says his country is already receiving some kind of assistance from global communities, including South African businesses. He addressed the media in Pretoria. Now that we get the support globally, we have a lot of Chinese community here together with the South African business people to transport the medical supply which most needed in China at the moment, they work day and night for us. And your custom official immigration us and the aviation authorities give open the green line, the green channel for the air China to fly those kind we need to China. The situation has compelled China to suspend public transportation operations, closing down public places such as cinemas and disallowing group tours. Two specialized hospitals have been set up to help deal specifically with cases of the coronavirus. Lin elaborates. This is unexpected disease, virus, happen break, breakout in China. So the hospital is not enough. Uh, the infected people is lumber is growing. So we need the hospital. We about to build two hospitals with 2,600 beds in 10 days. We need to work day and night. Lin says the Chinese government has no intention to repatriate South Africans or any foreign nationals living and working in that country due to the outbreak. And the South African citizens in China, Hubei province and Wuhan in particular are safe. There's no evidence or reason to support repatriation or emergency evacuation of South African citizens from China. Over 3,000 South Africans are currently studying and living in China. Lin says for now, they cannot confirm any positive cases of the outbreak in the African continent. Despite the five suspected cases that were reported in Ethiopia and Botswana recently. Botswana, we also noticed that yesterday they are reported that five people get favored. But they are, fortunately, the government attached great importance to let cases and already isolate those people for their self-quarantines. And I'm sure, and we pray, they are also negative. So here, whoever come here, first we stop the potential threat, the spread to the continent. China has commended South Africa for availing its resources and capabilities in assisting Ethiopia to carry out the necessary tests on the five suspected coronavirus patients. The results came out negative. Fanuel Schumer, SABC News, Pretoria. South Africa's International Relations Minister Naledi Pando and her Dutch counterpart have committed to renew partnerships in trade, business as well as science and technology. 
Steph Block is in South Africa for the inaugural meeting of the South Africa-Netherlands Joint Commission for Cooperation. The ministers held a briefing in Pretoria on Monday to provide details of the bilateral meeting. Noma Bulani has more. Both International Relations Minister Naledi Pando and the Dutch Foreign Affairs Minister Stef Bloch expressed their satisfaction with the strong and broad relationship that exists between the two countries. The bilateral relations include trade, business as well as science and technology. Bloch says they're looking forward to the increased interaction with Africa and to promote a closer relationship of the African Union with its European equivalent. Moving to the current issues, both ministers were happy with the international cooperation displayed in response to the coronavirus outbreak. Bloch says the international response is helping to deal with the situation. We cooperate closely with the World Health Organization because um, a case like this illustrates how very intertwined the world has become. In the field of people-to-people contact, the virus has been spreading, unfortunately, all around the world. We have, unfortunately, also seen a number of people losing their lives inside and outside China. So it illustrates how extremely important international cooperation is. Pando welcomed the donation of 2.5 million medical face masks to China by South African pharmaceutical companies. I think this is a very important gesture uh, by South African business because I do know there is a need uh, for these masks. uh, And so we welcome uh, the contributions uh, that the private sector uh, has made. On Brexit, Pando says the South African relations with the European Union and the United Kingdom shouldn't be gravely affected. The United Kingdom left the membership of the EU on Friday and Minister Pando says Economic Development Minister Ibrahim Patel is working on the new trade agreements based on the exit. Uh, With uh, cognizance of the EPA and its uh, uh, implications for whatever would eventually uh, uh, be the agreed uh, arrangement. But what we must not harm is the very strong trade relationship between ourselves and the European Union, as well as the strong trade partnership we enjoy with the United Kingdom. So we've been in a very good position, and we'd want to ensure that this is not in any way negatively affected by what ensues following this exit. The Dutch minister is confident the European Union and United Kingdom will be able to iron out a plausible agreement for trade and other policy relations. We have to renegotiate our whole relationship, not only in the fields of trade, but also cooperation in fighting crime, in fighting terrorism. Uh, And I have um, the, the full intention of continuing to cooperate as closely as possible with, with our neighbours, because that will be to the benefit both of, of the Dutch and European people and, and um, the citizens of the, of the UK. Meanwhile, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has set out a post-Brexit role for Britain as a champion of global free trade. He says there's no need for a free trade agreement with the EU to be conditional on alignment with its regulations and standards and state aid, marking a clear difference with the EU's position. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy subsidies social protection, the environment, or anything similar, any more than the EU should be obliged to accept UK 
rules. The UK will maintain the highest standards in these areas, better in many respects than those of the EU, without the compulsion of a treaty. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One. Hashtag Vision 2030. Former Kenya's President Daniel Arab Moy has died on Tuesday. Moy's death was announced by President Uhuru Kenyatta in a statement on the state broadcaster this morning. Moy, who ruled Kenya for 24 years, had been in hospital for over a month. To find out more about this, Sakina Kamwenda spoke to our Nairobi correspondent Sarah Kimani. So, Sarah, you know, obviously um, a sad day for Kenya. Uh, just give us a sense of how this news of the passing of the former statesman has been met. Uh, well, it's uh, just been announced uh, is when President uh, Kenyatta has made what is called a proclamation announcing the death of uh, President Moi, uh, who incidentally is uh, President Kenyatta's mentor uh, and the successor of uh, his late father, Jomo Kenyatta. So Kenyans are now waking up to the news uh, in the morning here in Nairobi. And so Kenyans are just waking up to the news of his death. Uh, President Moi has been ailing for some time now, about two years. And uh, this year alone, he spent actually the whole, the, the whole two months uh, in hospital uh, where he was admitted at the beginning of the year. So, um, uh, apart from that, in terms of his legacy for those who might not be in the know, um, what was he like as president of Kenya? Well, uh, it's a mixed legacy uh, for many, and many uh, we remember Moi for having ruled Kenya with an iron fist for uh, the 24 years that he was president. Uh, initially, when he took over power, uh, he was said to be a soft-spoken person. But uh, uh, after an attempted coup in the country uh, in 1982, President, Kenya, President Moi said uh, to have changed tact and ruled the country with an iron fist. Uh, his legacy was also uh, dogged uh, with the... Uh, uh, claims of corruption, uh, corruption scandals during his time, a lot of money uh, was lost, and uh, some even claiming that uh, his family uh, enriched, enriched itself uh, from uh, public coffers. But it is also uh, during his legacy that uh, the education system in Kenya was reformed uh, to be more, uh, to include more practical lessons and to have uh, uh, young uh, people coming out of school uh, able to uh, do practical subjects. Um, some will also say that it is during his legacy that the country uh, was able to establish itself as an economic giant in the East African region. So uh, quite a mixed uh, legacy that President Moy will leave behind. That's our reporter in Kenya, Sarah Kimani, speaking to Sakina Komwendo of Morning Live. South Africa's main opposition party's head of policy, Gwen Nguenga, says policy uncertainty will soon be a thing of the past in the DA. Nguenga, together with the party's deputy federal chairperson, Mike Waters, has tabled a draft document on the DA values and principles ahead of its policy conference to be held in late April. She also lashed out at former party leader, Musi Maimani, saying he caused policy confusion in the DA. Abongile Dumako has more. The Democratic Alliance's head of policy, Gwen Gwenya, has strongly criticized former party leader 
Musi Maimane saying he has caused policy confusion in the party. Earlier, the DA released a draft document on its values and principles. Gwenya says it's now up to the South African community and DA members to scrutinize the policy document ahead of the party's policy conference at the end of April this year. However, she would not be drawn into giving details of how Maimane left the party, except to say that policy uncertainty started happening at the time when Maimane was the party leader. Well, Musi left because of a very damning review report, which I won't go into. He most certainly did not leave because of, um, um, of policy uncertainty, which he would have obviously been responsible for um, as, as the leader of the party as well. Um, but I don't want that to obviously be the subject of the, the, the press conference. Um, the reality is that, I think his name is Govan, asked some questions, which is exactly what we're asking from the party and the public. A question, in my mind, doesn't reveal any ambiguity. There is no ambiguity. Meanwhile, Nguenya has defended her comments, which she made after meeting the last apartheid president, F.W. Tiklerk. I said it was a privilege to have been able to, to spend the day and talk to him. And there are many people who I would certainly not give a wholesale endorsement of, but I had, if I had the opportunity to spend the day with someone and get first-hand insights into history and to ask him, for example, did he have any doubts the day that he announced Mandela's release or was there absolute conviction at that point? Not many people get an opportunity to ask someone first-hand what their thoughts and their feelings were at key moments in history. Um, and that's quite frankly the definition of privilege. You're Political analyst Ralph Matecha says the current fallouts in the Democratic Alliance will have detrimental effects on the party's performance during the 2021 local government elections. He says policy uncertainty around race relations and redress, including the departure of DA leader Musi Maimane and former Jobek mayor Herman Mashaba, have seen the party lose its focus on what it stands for. Matera says with only months to go before the party's policy and national conferences, the DA must get its house in order and be clear on what it stands for. I think this is the party that is trying to find itself and the cost of that it is going to come out in the next elections which is the uh, 2021 local government election. They have already started paying the price in the elections last year, the general election, where for the first time they failed to grow and that just shows you that the DA is nowhere to be found. It is being displaced as a political party. The DA Federal Deputy Chairperson Mike Waters says the DA's draft policy document will be open for scrutiny and discussion by party members and all South Africans ahead of the party's policy conference scheduled for April and before the National Elective Conference sometime this year. I'm Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. Interim leader of South Africa's DA, John Steenhuizen, says the Mangawung Metropolitan Municipality in the Free State Province is governed by people who don't have the residents' interests at heart. Steenhuizen says the only way the troubled municipality can recover is by allowing Executive Mayor Oli Mlamleli to step down. Sienhazen took the party's real State of the Nation tour to Bloemfontein to assess service delivery. Makhala Masiteng reports from Bloemfontein. The Mangau Metro has again been downgraded by ratings agency Moody's due to poor governance and financial mismanagement. The DA has described the municipality as a cash cow for unscrupulous politicians. DA interim leader John Steenhazen has visited an incomplete Mushosho Road project in Bloemfontein where he interacted with affected business people. It goes very, very, very long because of the dirty outside the place and the storage 
that brings too much flies inside the shop. Yes, that's a big problem and it's very, very, very slow. It's a problem for me to parent, to feed my child. I had to close my business because of uh, this dust, sewage. People, they don't come because of the dust. They say we sell uh, dirty food. Stian Hazen says that the Mangao Metro is not doing justice for the city's economy. Well, I think it's got a junk status now because it's got a junk government in charge of it and that has manifested itself in what we've been able to see here today. A government that long ago stopped working for the people and been working, it's been working for the politicians uh, to make them, well, they're leaving residents, business owners completely locked out of opportunity. Now, here where I've been, there have been some business people who are doing their, their part in growing the economy. They've taken the risk, they've started businesses, small businesses, uh, which we know is going to be the engine room of growth in South Africa, and yet the municipality expects them to operate in the most terrible of conditions. The roads that aren't fixed, water leaks continuously, and no sanitation or refuse removal, rubbish not collected. Stian Hazen has also weighed in on the weekend's heated exchange with the DA's former leader, Musi Maimani. There was no tour. I wasn't involved in a tour on Twitter, and I'm not going to get into dialogues with people on Twitter. I'm out focusing on the issues that matter most to South Africans, like this year. Uh, these are the real issues that people care about, not the tit-for-tat politics that people see and frustrate them too much. They want real solutions to the real problems facing them, and that's my focus, and it's going to be the focus of the DA. And you are called Judas. Well, people can call me lots of things. I've been called many, many things in my political career. It doesn't deter me. I've got a job to do, and that's to find solutions to the problems our people are facing, and that's my focus. Meanwhile, Stian Hazen has also welcomed the impending resignation of Swani Executive Mayor Stevens Mohalaba, saying the move is in the best interest of community. Amahala Masiteng in Bloemfontein. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, former Kenyan President Daniel Arab Moy has died. Moy led the country from 1978 to 2002. He died in Nairobi where he had been receiving treatment. The Malawi diaspora grouping in South Africa has welcomed the decision by Malawi's constitutional court to uphold an application from opposition parties to nullify Peter Mutarika's victory in the May 2019 presidential election. And Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has held a historic meeting with Sudan Sovereign Council Head General Abdel Fattah al-Buhan. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News, 
independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Deputy Director General in the South African Treasury, Ismail Momonyat, says he does not believe anti-apartheid activist Neil Agate committed suicide in prison as the security branch police had claimed. Testifying at the inquest into Agat's death in the High Court in Johannesburg on Monday, Momonyat said Agat had a big bruise on his forehead a day or two before he died. This was after he was apparently assaulted and tortured on the 10th floor of the then John Foster Square police station. Agat was found hanging in his cell on February the 5th, 1982. Wisani Makubel reports. Deputy Director General at the Treasury, Ismail Momoniat, has also spoken out about how he was tortured by the security branch police at the then John Foster Square police station. He says the weekend before Neil Aget died, he hadn't been returned to his cell. Momoniat says he last saw Aget a day or two before he died. Neil was looking bad. That was the one day I greet him and he doesn't greet back. Neil was like in a daze, like he didn't know what was happening. He was almost like a zombie, and I was very perturbed, and I saw a big mark on his forehead. It stood out, and I've never forgotten that, ever. Okay, it was a bruise, and it was big, and he he didn't have that before. And, of course, I just concluded that he had been beaten. He had a visible injury. And so I was struck that he didn't greet back, he didn't wink, he didn't say hi, nothing. And he was in another world. I was so worried that the first opportunity I could, and that could have been that evening or the following evening, if if I saw him on the morning of the third, then it would have been the following evening. But the night before, Neil died. Agat's family has rejected the claims of security branch police that he committed suicide. Momoniat is also not convinced Agat killed himself. I don't believe Neil hung himself. I think it's quite easy for them to come if they kill Neil on the 10th floor and then to come and do something. It's quite possible, okay? You wouldn't hear it if they were soft in how they opened cells and cell doors. Essentially, are you saying that given your last sighting of him, he he didn't have the physical capacity to carry out such a maneuver? Literally, they had uh, really finished him up. So I don't think he could have. After concluding his evidence, Momoniat was followed by another activist, Maurice Smithers, on the witness stand. Smithers says he was detained in Randbeck, but was taken to John Foster Square one day on his way to see an eye specialist about two weeks before Aget died. Smithers says that's when he saw what was happening to Aget through the ripped glass window in the room next door. He was made to do push-ups a substantial number. He was hit either with a belt or a rolled-up newspaper while doing them. Then he had to get up and run on the spot, arms outstretched in front of him. Every so often he was made to lift his legs up high while running, and all of this was interspersed with more push-ups. All the while he was being interrogated. He was sweating profusely, and when once he nearly fell over a chair with exhaustion, it was clear that he was completely naked because he obviously drew on his underpants and then his trousers. I could only imagine how often he had to go through this and what worse things were done to him. Smithers will continue to testify this morning. I'm Wisani Makubele in Johannesburg.
South Africa's Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy, Gwede Mandashe, says government has taken a decision to allow mining companies to generate energy for self-use without getting a license. He says this is to mitigate the problems mining companies face due to electricity shortages. He was delivering the keynote address at the African Mining Indaba at the Cape Town International Convention Centre. Lulama Makia reports. The International Monetary Fund's growth prospects for South Africa this year forecast that it will be just under 1%. Contributing factors are said to be structural constraints and recent power outages. Coupled with that, latest figures from Statistics SA indicate that mining production decreased by 3.1% year-on-year in November last year. Minister Kwete Mandasha says government has allowed mining companies to generate their own energy. And because of the problem of energy, we must allow our mining companies to generate energy for service. And you will not need a license for that, you just register and run ahead. The Minerals Council of South Africa has welcomed this move. The council's chief economist, Hank Langenhofen, explains. We are producing under capacity because of the problems with electricity and it will give us a little bit more certainty and we can hedge a bit against the tariff increases. So we're delighted. In another development, Mandasha says significant progress has been made in reducing fatalities in the mines. He says last year, mining fatalities dropped to 51 compared to 81 recorded in the previous year. He has called on all stakeholders in the mining industry to redouble their efforts to reach the goal of zero harm. He added that government is concerned about looming retrenchments in the industry. Lula Mamaika in Cape Town. Eritrea and Kyrgyzstan have denounced United States President Donald Trump's controversial travel ban, which targets prospective immigrants from six additional countries. The ban, which is one of Trump's signature policies, now includes six new countries that have been blocked from obtaining certain types of visas. To discuss this further, Samara Mangesi spoke to Brooks Spector, United States foreign policy expert. I'm always nonplussed when the Trump administration issues um, almost out of the blue, uh, travel ban- universal kinds of travel bans. Uh, if you remember back to the beginning of the Trump administration, there was an effort uh, to set up what he called an absolute total ban on all Muslims entering the United States, which of course got bounced out of uh, out of being uh, legal by various court actions uh, right from the beginning, and they kept trying a different version and so forth. Um, this particular one that includes Nigeria and Eritrea and Myanmar and uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, it, it doesn't appear to be on the face of it triggered by religion, ethnicity, or race precisely, because that's a pretty wide swathe of, of people from uh, a Nigeria, which is partly Christian, partly Muslim, 
uh, Eritrea, which is mostly Muslim, uh, uh, the uh, two Asian nations, one has significant Muslim populations, but Burma has virtually none. Um, and the argument, as near as I can tell from the, uh, the Trump administration, is over security issues, verify, you know, uh, the ability to have all the data verified on mm-hmm. applications for visas. I think I should add also that it's not an absolute ban on all travel. It doesn't, for example, as far as I can tell, ban normal, routine student visas that are correctly applied for and which obviously have time time restrictions on them or or uh, appropriate legal, verifiable uh, business travel by individuals doing legitimate business. But what it does obviously do at the same time is if it stays in place and if courts don't uh, overrule it, uh, it's going to put it make it very difficult for family reunifications. That is, if if somebody if the if part of a family unit uh, is in the U.S. from country A or B and uh, they apply for a visa for family reunification purposes. Uh, for a, uh, a sister or a brother or a child, that's going to become very difficult. Um, yes. I think the, the the real problem is in the manner in which these things get announced. There doesn't appear to be anything even approaching consultation or discussion or uh, the kind of thing where you say, if we cannot resolve this problem and get X, Y, or Z fixed, uh, then we will be forced, sadly, to do the following. None of that seems to happen. It just suddenly, out of nowhere, poof, there is an announcement. But now, Brooks, with regards to, because you, you've said that this seems like it, it's more to do with security, and the U.S. has defended its decision with claims that the affected countries fell short of its security standards, including passport technology, and failed to share information on criminals and terrorist suspects. However, we have seen a lot of very drastic, um, a lot of drastic changes or, or, or policies being put into place with regards to um, trying to block off people from coming into the United States. So, how much of this should we actually believe, uh, and how much should be taken with a pinch of salt? Well, that's the key question, of course, isn't it? Now, I, you know, you'll note that I didn't say that that was the case. I said that's that appears to be the administration's position as to why it has done this. Um, and it, it isn't, for example, ending uh, immigration into the United States or travel, uh, uh, you know, across the board in all ways, shapes, and forms. Um, it, it, what troubles me the most is the preemptory way in which these things get done. The, the lack, as I said, of, of any apparent consultation or discussion or uh, apparently setting out the the circumstances by which uh, the U.S. government would say it feels satisfied about change in visa issue regimens and so forth. Um, And the only conclusion I can really draw from this is that the Trump administration uh, doesn't particularly value consultation with countries uh, that it's going to have a, a, an enormous impact on by virtue of its, of its decisions and chooses to make the decision regardless of the impact that it, that it has. Um, I mean, you should note that it, it, it's not, after all, uh, it'd be very hard for somebody to make the claim that, say, 
Nigerian immigrants to the United States as a whole constitute a terrorist class or constitute a uh, a class of people who get dependent on uh, public welfare payments and so forth because look at the statistics and uh, Nigerian immigrants to the United States tend to actually have a higher per capita income than citizens who are already there. So, I mean, the, the rationales are are hard to get a handle on, and all we're left with is the explanation that both you and I have described. Uh, whether or not it's the heart of it, it's a different question, isn't it? And lastly, the ban comes on the eve of the upcoming U.S.-Nigeria uh, Binational Commission Strategic Dialogues. Now, many say Nigeria's inclusion in the list is a big blunder as Nigeria is a U.S. strategy partner in the fight against terror groups, Boko Haram, and cybercrime. Do you think diplomatic talks could lead to Trump reconsidering his decision? You know, it, it, it always astounds me that this administration manages to make these grand gestures uh, right at the moment where something else is supposedly taking place. I mean, over the last number of years, uh, U.S. support and assistance to the Nigerians and its neighbors in dealing with with Boko Haram uh, and related groups has been important and significant, and we all know there really is a problem. Uh, To do this particular announcement and to include Nigeria in that announcement, as you say, literally on the eve of a strategic dialogue between the two countries, the United States and then Africa's largest nation in population terms and a major uh, international factor uh, in Africa more broadly. It's a blunder. There's no other way to describe it. That's Brooke Spector, United States foreign policy expert, speaking to Samora Mangesi. It's seven... 45 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics updates up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. The installation of new scanning and verification points in Kenya has made it easier and faster for the movement of goods on the highway. The Kenya Revenue Authority says this has reduced its cargo verification up from 10 to 50 percent and scanning of goods is almost 90 percent. This after the installation of a new integrated scanner command center by the taxman KRA. Rwandans are said to benefit from low-cost housing made out of a new construction technology, Earthbag, that is currently being used in different countries in Asia, the US and Europe. Earthbag construction is a versatile, easy-to-master, low-impact and highly durable form of building suitable for structures from houses to root cellars. Affordable Human Needs, an American-based firm with African headquarters in Rwanda, is leading the project with the main focus of facilitating Rwandan low-income earners to own their own homes. The Zimbabwe Consolidation Diamond Mining Company has failed to meet its 2019 target of 3 million carats, but officials are optimistic fortunes will turn around. 
as the firm has consolidated its investments in exploration, mining and processing to improve output this year. The ZCDC says it's aiming to double the 1.6 million carats produced last year through joint ventures agreements, increased exploration, as well as mitigating viability challenges linked to power shortages and access to foreign currency. Since the diamond policy was issued, the Zimbabwe Consolidated Diamond Mining Company says it's now looking for joint venture partners, adding that those joint venture partners get allocated a particular concession and then subdivide the overall 626 special grant into specific special grants for those venture companies. The Namibia National Farmers Union has joined the call to educate farmers on how to control the enclosure bush on their farms and strengthen its utilization specifically through bush biomass in communal areas. The union revealed this during the signing of the Memorandum of Understanding on initiatives to capacitate farmers with debushing advisory service. The two parties will be collaborating in capacity development through training, exposure visits, farmer information days and mentoring in bush control and biomass utilization. Ertel Networks Zambia has introduced non-expiry bundles and slashed the data pay-as-you-go rate by 95%. Pay G is where a subscriber gets browse from the main account once the available data bundle is depleted. The US dollar is trading at 360.17 Nigerian Nara, 10.72 Botswana Pula, uh, 99.37 Kenyan Shilling and 14.64 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, a one US dollar will cost you 4.26 Brazilian roll, a 63.77 Russian ruble, 71.40 Indian rupee, 7.1 Chinese yuan, and 1491 to the South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold $1,575, platinum $968 per ounce, brand crude oil $54.77 a barrel. From an African perspective, Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. And now in our sports update, the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, says it has asked the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, for a public hearing on its case for Russia's exclusion from international sporting competition. At stake in the hearing will be the fate of Russian athletes hoping to compete in such events as this year's Tokyo Olympics and the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics and the 2022 Football World Cup. WADA Director General Olivia Nigli said his group made the formal request for a public forum to resolve the dispute would ensure the world hears the case from both sides and understands how punishment, if any, is administered. WADA sent its case against the Russian anti-doping agency Rusada to cast the world's highest sport court. The last month, it will be 
a CAS panel that must decide whether to confirm the four-year ban WADA imposed on Russia last month after considering Russia's case against the EPIC sanction. Rusada disputed the WADA Executive Committee ban on the 27th of December, setting the stage for WADA to send the case to CAS. The Women's Rugby World Cup final will be held at one of the game's major venues for the first time next year when Eden Park in Auckland stages the title decider of the ninth edition. The semi-finals and bronze medal match at the first Women's World Cup to be held in the Southern Hemisphere will also be held at the New Zealand's largest sports stadium, which has a capacity of 50,000 people and hosted the 1987-2011 men's finals. World Rugby has high hopes that next year's tournament, which will run from the 18th of September to the 16th of October, will build on the success of the 2017 edition in Ireland, which set records for attendance and television viewership. The South African Netbank Cup reigning champions TS Galaxy will start the defense of the title with a crucial away encounter in the last 16 stage against Chipper United at Nelson Mandela Stadium in the Eastern Cape Province on Wednesday evening. The game comes at a critical time when Galaxy are not doing well in the Glade Africa Championship, currently occupying the 12th spot, just four points above the relegation zone. They haven't won in five matches now, having lost three and drawn two of those games. But head coach Dan Dens Malisela expects his team to use this opportunity to regain their confidence. We, we are hoping that this match is, is one of those things that help us turn around. You know, um, I think participating in the net bank last season helped us a lot. Uh, of the difficulties we've been having in the league, you know, so many draws. Even now we have so, so many draws. Then after, when we started the net bank, things started changing around. So um, we are hoping that uh, this will be our turnaround match. Standard Bank Protea's batsman David Miller spoke to members of the media about the team's preparation ahead of the Momentum One Day International Series against England at the Newlands Cricket Stadium. It's a new start. I, th I think uh, you know we teams go up and down, uh, and and this is this is a stage where you know we. I, I personally don't really enjoy the whole fact that you know we're just building and we and we and we. We're trying to build for something because, like, at the end of the day, international cricket is you need to perform, uh, regardless of you know going through youngsters and this. So the guys need to come in and obviously learn as quick as possible. Um, and we and we had to, I've you know, mentioned it before when we played the T20s in India, we had to win. Like, I mean, we're not here to um, just see how things go. The top echelon of the Kenya Marathon team for the Olympics in July will use the London Olympics to measure preparedness as the marathon world record holders Eliud Kipchoge and Bridget Kosgei will lead Kenya's men and women's team for the Tokyo Olympic Games in July. According to the chairman of Alec Athletics Kenya, Jackson Tuway, the selection process was very tough and it took quite some time and some soul-searching to produce the last 10. Marathon is not like the other, you know, track and field, for example, that we, we will go to the field and they compete and then you pick one, two and three. So we, dip, we have to depend on quite a number of things. First of all is the ranking in the world, the world ranking. And so we look at that and, and that is what assists us to select the team. So we look at the ranking, the time uh, and of course the willingness and availability of athletes. That's the Sport News this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, former Kenya's president Daniel Arab Moy has died and China calls on the international community to help tackle coronavirus. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Our taking us to the top of our for the news is Kakai Kilonzo with a song titled Kenyan Chiyangu. <laughs> Lengo lako tu 
Wataka kunyamba Kenya we Utuaribiewa Wataka kunyamba Kenya we Utuaribiewa Arufu yako twaijua Hata ukipanda ndege Arufu yako twaijua tu Hata ukipanda ndege Ewe Kenya inji yangu Ewe Kenya baba yangu Ewe Kenya mama yangu Sitakuwacha milele Kenya yangu usijali Ukitukanwa na jirani Kenya yangu usijali Ukitukanwa na jirani Jeje anaona wivu Kwa vile umeenelea Jeje anaona wivu kwa vile umeendelea Anakuita nyangau Amekuita mnonyaji Anakuita nyangau Amekuita mnonyaji